HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Bob Valgenti, standing in for Cora Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, whose most recent issue is entirely devoted to COVID dispatches. In it, authors from around the world offer short, intimate portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For this podcast series, hosts from the journal's editorial collective are joined by some of the featured authors to share their stories and to hear how things have progressed since their original submissions in March and April of 2020. My guest this week is Ashley Rose Young, whose essay, A COVID-19 Relief Kitchen Created by an Unexpected Advocate, appears in our most recent issue of Gastronomica. Ashley is the historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Young is a cultural and social historian of the United States who earned her BA in history from Yale University and her MA and PhD in history from Duke University. Ashley, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. It's a pleasure. Great. So let's start with life at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, what seems like forever ago. What motivated you in that time of uncertainty to write and record the stories of individuals in the food industry faced with this pandemic? 
looking back almost, I guess, more than six months ago now, we were in a completely different headspace, as you mentioned. There were so, so many unknowns. There was such heightened fear. And I think many Americans, if you talk to them, would say at that time they felt like they were part of history, that they were in a moment that was going to be significant moving forward. And that was quite interesting for a historian like myself to feel that way, to feel that I was part of a pivotal moment in our nation's history. And so I thought about the experiences of people across the U.S., different regions, diverse backgrounds, and I wanted to know how they were feeling. Did they have similar fears and anxieties to me? Were there connections, some sort of universal experience? And and if so, could we capture that or the differences in interviews and and you know, just learning from from their stories and their experiences. So in particular, I had an interest in capturing stories about food distribution. My family actually owned a gourmet grocery food store, several of them, in fact, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, for 72 years. They closed in 2018, but I have a particular interest in and personal experience with food distribution. And so I really wanted to reach out to people working in grocery stores and reach out to people who were part of a food distribution system that pervade foods to grocery stores who then purvey foods to everyday people in the U.S. And that was really my interest. I, I wanted to make sure that we captured those experiences, not just of the consumer themselves and not just of, um, say, farmers or meat processing plants, but the people who actually move the food um, from farm to our table. Do you think that within the, the broader food system that that piece you know, those who move the food supply, all of those in between the farm and the table, if you would. Um, do you think that is, to some extent, a forgotten uh, sector of society? Oh, I think there are many, many areas of, of our food system that are misunderstood or largely unknown to the everyday consumer. I think farmers and the individuals who are actually picking produce, many of them migrant workers, uh, their experiences are largely unknown. So it's not just distributors who are actually, you know, acquiring product from farms or from meat processing plants. It's, it's you know, it's an entire system, really, and I think we do need to pay attention to all aspects. But given my particular research expertise, even my academic work um, with my book project focuses on street food vendors in U.S. history. So again, those those individuals who are moving product um, from farm to table—that's really where my passion lies, and so that's why I wanted to bring that story out because I do think. It can be overlooked, especially those distributors who are providing food to the restaurants or to a grocery store. Their their role, I think, is often um, just overlooked and 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 forgotten, like you said, by many consumers who may go to uh, their local restaurant or local grocery store to to get food products. And of course, at the end of that that supply chain, you have, in one sense, a universal audience. All of us are eating. All of us are, in some ways, engaging with the food system, most often as consumers. 
but did you have a particular audience in mind that you wanted to reach? You know, were you just trying to get those stories out there and chronicle them for the sake of the story subjects, or you know, did you want to reach a specific segment of society or or kind of you know group that was out there? Oftentimes when I think about speaking to a broader public, you know, I identify as a public historian, someone whose research is meant for public consumption uh, by a diverse range of people. Um, you know, I, I often do a check with myself where I think about my own interactions with my family uh, back in Pittsburgh, my, my brothers, my cousins, my dad and, and aunts. And I talked to them about their experiences and, you know, they expressed concern as shoppers themselves going into the grocery stores, or they expressed concern for a local restaurant as a patron uh, to that particular enterprise. But what I found is that in those conversations in March, you know, about the food system and our, our, our food culture and how it, how it might change, we didn't see that much conversation, you know, in my day-to-day -day interaction with them about food distributors. And so I think in a way I was writing these pieces and researching these pieces for my family. So <laughs> because I wanted I wanted them to understand the system even more and you know if they could learn something I think a broader public in the US could also learn something. So that was that's who I had in mind when I was thinking about this, but then also academics themselves, you know, I I wanted to write this piece for Gastronomica and I, I know so many people in food studies who are very serious scholars read this journal and I wanted to be able to you know look and examine and learn from people in the food distribution sector and share those stories with fellow academics. So they too, if they're, if they were not focusing on in distribution in this way, they, they could also think about it and, and um, learn from, from these essays and those experiences. So, you know, so as a historian and you, you identified as a, as a public historian, so I'm always interested in the role that narrative plays and we can think of narrative being a form of knowledge that exists alongside, we might say, you know, different forms of knowing whether that be uh, what we gather through quantitative research or other methods. So could you say a little bit about, you know, so here we have, we'll, we'll be talking today about uh, one of the interviews that you captured, um, but could you speak a little bit to the role of what I would call the anecdotal? There's a way of, you know, maybe putting history together that is, uh, based on a certain rigorous empirical model. But then there is also the broader fabric of history and of society that we can assemble through these varying narratives. So I'm interested to hear about how these glimpses, if you will, that come out in these stories can tell us something that reaches far beyond that local context in which they're in. That's a great Great question. And I have to tell you, working at the National Museum of American History, this is something we have to face often with our research. We are attempting to uh, tell a story of our nation, right, of so many people with very, very different experiences, that whenever we do conduct fieldwork or collect an object that tells a particularly compelling or unique story or important story, 
you know, we have to think about, you know, is this a local story? Is this a story of a particular community in the United States? And then we have to think about how we contextualize that particular person's experience in the larger national narrative, because no individual's story is going to speak to the experiences of our diverse public. But we do try at our museum, and increasingly so, we are trying to capture the voices and experiences of individuals who have thus far been marginalized traditionally in historic narratives and at our museum itself. And we are focusing on communities in uh, regions outside of the Northeast, for example, or the coasts. We look at marginalized communities who have faced so many barriers because of systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, and other um, cultural and social you know, norms that have pervaded our country. And we're now starting to, and you know, not starting to, but even more so now as a nation, we are aware of these issues and aware of the silence of many of these voices in our archives and in our museums because of, of racism and sexism, like I said. And so it's really important for me as a historian to reach out to people who have vocations or personal, uh, you know, who identify in a way that their stories may not currently be, be in our collections. And I want to work with them in a very respectful and safe space where they can be vulnerable in what ways they choose to be. And they not only feel that we are preserving their stories, but they feel that they have a platform through our museum to share their stories and willingly so in collaboration with our team. And so that's kind of getting into this larger philosophy of, of being a public historian and doing so in a fair and respectful manner. But I do think it comes back to that question of, can the local represent a larger story or can an individual's experiences represent the larger story? But my goal as a historian is to try to put together diverse perspectives so that 20, 30, 100 years on down the line, when someone might listen to these interviews or read the transcripts, they can see the breadth of experiences that diverse Americans had. And perhaps they see a commonality of that anxiety or stress, for example, during the pandemic. But hopefully they also get a sense of those uh, larger differences based on socioeconomic status or someone's job or you know where they're living in the country. So it's a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful response. And um, what I heard throughout uh, everything that you just explained there is the, is the power of the human voice. And that's what you're trying to, to capture. So many of us who have been moved by um, lessons from history, we don't identify with the statistics or the dates. We identify with the human figures and the voices that come through in those stories. So maybe now it's a, it's a good time we can we can shift our focus a bit um, to the voices that you captured. So you had sent two submissions to Gastronomica for our special issue, both of which the editors loved, and each of which speaks to a distinct human experience in the early days of the pandemic. Our focus today will be an interview you conducted with a grocery store manager. But before we delve into that story, could you tell us a bit about your published essay and its central figure? Of course. So I actually had the chance to connect with 
Ricardo Barrias, who is a customer development specialist, a salesman for Gordon Food Services. Now, Gordon Food Services operates in Pittsburgh in in the kind of western part of Pennsylvania, as well as the Midwest of the United States. But what they are is a they're a broad line food distributor. And essentially, as as Ricardo told me, they they sell everything that a restaurant needs um, from tinfoil to, you know, special beef products. If if a restaurant needs it to operate, they sell it. Hence the broad, broad line distribution. And, you know, I was interested in what Ricardo was experiencing during the pandemic because he caters particular particularly to high-end restaurants in downtown Pittsburgh, uh, in the theater district, for example. And he really tailors his, uh, he really works with his clients to figure out what specialty products they need. And he was doing so well. This was actually, you know, his first year working for Gordon Food Services, and he was doing spectacularly. And then the pandemic hit and the restaurants closed down in downtown Pittsburgh. And all of a sudden, you have an entire industry of service workers in his community who were out of work, who were fearful of being able to pay bills, who were, there was just so many unknowns. And so he quickly was thinking, all right, I have a warehouse full of food and other supplies through my employer, and we have hungry, out-of-work service industry workers how can we solve this issue? So he actually went to one of his clients, uh, Spencer Warren, who owns several uh, eateries in downtown Pittsburgh, the Warren Bar and Borough, as well as Penn Cove Eatery. And he said, I have this warehouse full of food. If I donate product to you, would you be willing to set up a relief kitchen in downtown Pittsburgh for service industry workers? And that would enable you to keep your own staff employed during the pandemic while also, you know, helping to support our community. And and Ricardo himself had worked in high-end restaurants as a bartender for years and years before he switched to broadline food distribution. And he had worked in the restaurants in downtown Pittsburgh. So the people who were out of a job were his friends. And he he saw them just dealing with this horrific upending experience. And and so he was able to work with Spencer and, and they opened the relief kitchen, um, you know, at at the Warren and at Penn Cove Eatery. And they were, when I spoke to them at the end of March, early April, they were feeding 40 to 60 community community members a day out of that relief kitchen through the donated foods from from Gordon Food Service. So that's what that that essay is about. Yeah, and I was I was I was struck in that essay, you know, and it, and it recalls themes that we've discussed on this podcast before. When Stephen Meinster was my guest, and it's how resilient and how prepared the food service industry is on a certain level to seize upon um, those moments or even those vacuums when they appear, uh, because in a certain sense, that's what they're prepared to do at a moment's notice every night is to is to find the customers and please the customers and and to make things work. So perhaps we're at the time right now uh, that we can take a break. And then um, when we return, we can discuss the interview that you conducted with a grocery store manager um, at a, a chain supermarket in the Northeast. 
So we're going to take a short break, and then we'll return to our interview with Ashley Rose Young. You are listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. I'm Bob Valgenti, standing in for Coral Lee. My guest today is Ashley Rose Young, who is the historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and a contributor to the most recent issue of Gastronomica dedicated to COVID dispatches. So Ashley, let's turn to your unpublished interview with a grocery store manager. A feature of our COVID Dispatch podcasts has been the author reading their submission for the audience prior to our discussion. Your submission, which is in the form of an interview, does not quite lend itself to that type of reading. So perhaps you can read your introduction to that interview for us, and then we can discuss. I'd be happy to. Many grocery stores across the United States are experiencing higher sales numbers than ever before, as Americans stockpile their home pantries and refrigerators to wait out the pandemic. In some places, customers are described as quote-unquote panic buying, filling shopping carts to the brim with high-demand items ranging from rolls of toilet paper to cartons of eggs, and in some cases, hodgepodge of random items thrown into the cart just in case. Reporters have shared video footage and images of entire grocery aisles empty of product. Employees are working around the clock to restock and disinfect the stores, but they have been struggling to keep up with relentless demand. The resulting work environment can be full of fear and anxiety, as well as determination and resilience. Acknowledging these trying conditions, news outlets and social media alike have branded grocery stores as part of the COVID-19 front lines, where staff are risking their health and in some cases, their lives to keep Americans fed during the pandemic. Below is an interview I conducted with a staff member who works at a national chain grocery store in the suburban Northeast. The questions were posed and answered via email on April 4th, 2020. We refrained from using company or personal identifiers of the employee. The interview addresses a range of experiences from this employee's shock when pandemonium hit their store, 
to the tremendous sense of pride they have for coping with such unsettling circumstances during the pandemic. Their story is one reflection on how COVID-19 has upended our everyday lives, leaving so many of us feeling simultaneously untethered and determined to stay grounded in these unprecedented times. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, as you noted, the subject of your interview has requested to remain anonymous. Uh, could you perhaps uh, explain a bit more uh, why this is the case and maybe even more generally what you think this could tell us about the realities of those who have been required to work all through the stay-at-home orders? I, I think it's difficult for this individual because she is not protected, for example, by a union, not represented um, in that way at this particular um, enterprise, right? And I think she has such great respect for her colleagues, um, especially those that she manages and has worked with throughout the pandemic, that I think she doesn't want to speak for their experiences, right? That this is her particular experience, but I do think she's also mindful of the fact that there could be repercussions um, should employers determine that what she said in this interview or shared with me on the phone was somehow, um, you know, it somehow said something bad about that company or somehow um, misrepresented her colleagues or employees. And so I think she prefers to remain anonymous because of that fact. She doesn't want to lose her job. She needs this job. Like so many people obviously need jobs to pay her bills, to, to support herself. Um, and so she has to be really careful um, because her job position isn't guaranteed. And something like an interview that like I said, did not intentionally portray the store in any negative way, but somehow came off that way, could be detrimental to her career. So I think we have to be mindful of that, just the precarity of people who work uh, on the front lines. I think that's one of the, the themes that we've seen again and again in stories that have come out of the pandemic is that uh, those who have been asked to work during these uh, somewhat remarkable times uh, face danger, real danger, or a kind of precarity that has exposed the more longstanding and deeper precarity that is there for so many of our workers and so many who provide us with essential resources. And the anonymity of the, of the interviewee um, doesn't in any way take away, and in fact, I think enhances uh, the wonderful honesty that comes through in, in her voice. Uh, at, on one hand, there's a kind of modesty and pragmatism, but then there is also this um, unsettling sense of resignation to uh, to the realities of the pandemic. Um, so I wonder if you could say perhaps a bit more about her description of her interaction with her customers and what this might mean to you as a public historian. And in particular, I'm thinking, um, that early on in the pandemic, she talks about uh, generally the positive interactions that she had with customers. Um, and it it's, gives us some insight into the way that we as shoppers and perhaps as a society are processing the, these events. So I'm, I'm going to take a, a short passage from what she says. She says, 
a lot to quote, a lot of customers have been extremely courteous in our interactions and telling us how much they appreciate us, thanking us for coming to work, and some even calling us heroes. Although I don't really feel like a hero, it's really nice to be showered with the kind words and extra appreciation. Customers have gifted us with snacks and donuts, and we also have seen a few threads in the local neighborhood Facebook group singing our praises. It's a hard job some days, even under normal circumstances, so interactions like this have made the tougher days much more bearable. And so there's a kind of wonderful positivity that comes out of this. But do you think that there's also a societal tendency to deal in hyperbole or to see things as either or situations that, that, you know, referring to our frontline workers as heroes perhaps covers up a much more complex reality that's there under the surface that these uh, frontline workers are dealing with every day? I I 100% agree with that. I I do think both from the customer perspective at that time in March, I think perhaps guilt on behalf of customers who who felt guilty that they were going to grocery stores where individuals were putting their lives at risk or if they were using internet shopping, if they had the means to do so. I think there was this need to express gratitude because there is this sense of unbalance that someone who can afford, for example, to use um, Amazon Prime or use a, a, a delivery system where they themselves don't have to go into the store. And then you have individuals at a time where we did not really know how rapidly COVID was spreading. You know, they are there because they have to work. Uh, this individual, the interviewee said, it's, it's not that I want to be here. I have to be here to survive in terms of economically to support myself. Um, And I think in that way, she didn't feel like a hero because for her, it was, it was a a means of, of carrying on. It was necessary to have financial stability to go into work. And, and she calls into question the very decision to go to work. You know, in this interview, she said, you know, and I'm just kind of summarizing, but is it really worth my risking my health and my life to come into work or should I leave this position uh, and try to figure things out without that financial stability you know and and she, she you know it was a tough decision she decided to stay uh, in work she wanted to maintain that financial independence and and she's been working without a break um, ever since March yeah, that's that's you know we'll, you have some follow up. You have a follow up interview with her later, but before we get to that um, and we learn out the, learn some of those details, I wanted to ask you just a little bit more. You know, it seems that at the end of uh, the interview that you conducted in early April, uh, that she ends on a positive note, um, and she says that she feels a huge sense of accomplishment getting through those those first few really crazy days. And to quote again, she says, I felt a surge in confidence and empowered that I could tackle anything that this job was going to throw at me. I also felt immense pride in our team for pulling together during the chaos and serving our customers and community. Do you think that her outlook on this, on those early days of the pandemic have changed since that time? Yes, I, I do. <laughs> I, I really do feel 
you know, having followed up with her over the months and in most recently this month, in fact, this week, things have really changed for her. I, I think she continues to quote unquote, like not feel like a hero. Again, this is a job that she has because it puts food on her table as well as on the tables of others through her labor. Um, and she talked about in our follow-up interviews, for example, a, a new normal, you know, accepting everything from the discomfort of wearing a mask every day, you know, having a sweaty face all of the time. Um, and also dealing with the fact that customers have returned to old habits of, of being at times quite demanding. Whereas in March, for example, in April, customers were paying those respects, were trying to be very kind, um, not, you know, if they asked for a product that maybe wasn't out on the shelves, uh, they might say, oh, so sorry to bother you, but do you happen to have X product available? But now come September or whatnot, you have some customers being very blatantly uh, angry or upset that a product is not available. And, and perhaps they ask, it, well, why isn't this cheese, for example? Why isn't it available? I've, I've tried to uh, get it three weeks in a row now, and I don't understand why it's not here. And so, you know, this manager's response, obviously keeping customer service in mind, is to say, you know, apologize to to mention that things are, you know, supply chains are still disrupted by the global pandemic and certain items aren't available. But I think at times for her, it's as if customers have, in some cases, almost kind of forgotten the precarity of COVID-19, that there is still a risk to personal health, um, maybe not as um, unknown as it was in March, but she feels that sometimes customers lose sight of the fact that there are these tremendous disruptions in our food system. And it's almost um, unfathomable to her that they don't realize that that is why the cheese is not in the store, Hmm. for example. Do you think, especially from her perspective, that the focus has changed? It's sort of gone from the anxiety over the unknowns about the disease to the anxieties about the unknowns concerning the timeline that this might go on forever. Exactly. So in our follow-up interview, she definitely expressed that. So for example, I'll I'll read from a follow-up interview Mm -hmm. conducted this week uh, where she said, quote, in March, we were thrust into this unprecedented time that we did not see coming. Back then, it didn't feel like it would last this long. As we were scrambling for information and trying to process the events unfolding in front of us, and it it was all at light speed. Now, it feels like we're stuck in this place for a while, and not being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel only adds to the stress. Ending that quote there. And so, you know, I think it goes back to that discomfort, you know, of taking and rightly so, taking extra precautions at the store, um, wearing PPE, making sure everything is sanitized. But, you know, customers have so quickly gone back to not saying outright their appreciation for these extra steps of the labor that that this person is putting into creating a safe space. And on top of that, uh, 
individuals across the industry in, in chain grocery stores are no longer receiving hazard pay. You know, they were in March and April and there were activists and there was a lot of push to pay an extra $2 or $3 or whatnot to have hazard pay, acknowledging that individuals were putting their lives at risk. But many, you know, companies across the food retailing industry uh, suspended that hazard pay in, in early summer as this quote-unquote new normal set in. And it really calls into question, well, well, how much do you value employee labor and the risk that they sustain working in a grocery store where they can come in contact with hundreds, if not thousands of customers a week? Um, you know, those risks are still there. But it's interesting because according to this individual she has come to terms with that risk. She kind of accepts it, as do customers. But again, it kind of chafes in a way. It's just unsettling in a way how quickly some customers can forget um, mm -hmm. that, you know, these workers are, yeah. are risking their health. And, um, or, or just how strong the desire for normalcy is, even if it's, you know, a kind of, you know, normalcy with an asterisk or, yes. or, or the kind that um, has a certain uncanniness about it because the original normal was itself uh, wrought with problems. So, so I thought, you know, as perhaps way, by way of a final question, as we get towards uh, the end of our time here, maybe step back from the interview uh, just a little bit to ask you a question as a historian because I think that the power of the interview format is that the interviewee is allowed to speak, as we, as I mentioned before, that that notion of the voice of the the individual comes through, oftentimes with little or minimal framing. And in fact, in in the interview that you conducted, uh, your questions were wonderfully open ended and really gave her the opportunity to share uh, her experiences during the early days of the of the COVID outbreak. Um, but as we look back on these types of stories, and as someone who is actively working in constructing exhibits and presenting history to the public, um, is, there, there, is there a way in retrospect that you, know, you might think, how should we frame uh, discussions like this? Or how should we frame a voice uh, like this woman's uh, so that people will not only hear the story, but it will resonate and have an effect that goes beyond just, uh, you know, perhaps our concern for what is an anomalous moment in time and focus instead on those underlying problems that, that come out. That's a great question. And I think there's no better place, for example, to, explore systemic issues in an industry or in a nation, whether it's related to race or gender or other issues, than asking the people who themselves are experiencing marginalization in those forms, you know, to go to them and say, what's your perspective on this industry? And I will say in phone conversations, I was able to speak to the store manager a little bit about those those larger topics of, you know, not, you know, providing them an opportunity to step away from their immediate personal experience and reflect on this industry that has built upon itself for decades and decades. You know, any of the issues that 
she experiences today outside of the pandemic, more those systemic issues are a result of history, are a result of decisions made generations ago in our in our industries. And so going back in these written interviews, I wish I would have provided more space for her to comment on the history of of or her knowledge of grocery industries and where these issues are coming from. Because as we know, there have been protests and activism among grocery store workers throughout the pandemic, as well as individuals, um, for example, in Instant Cart, you know, these these workers who are now um, harvesting product in grocery stores and and bringing them to individuals um, who can actually access that kind of service. But I think there's a space here where we have to recognize that it's not just the pandemic that's causing these issues. The pandemic is merely a window into seeing issues that have been present for so long, including, you know, living wage, including labor practices. You know, the grocery store industry can be a very demanding place to work. Um, I can speak to that from my personal experience growing up working in my family's grocery stores. And, you know, my mom and her sisters worked really hard to uh, shift the culture in their woman-owned business, but they were an exception within a much larger, very aggressive, uh, you know, bottom line kind of industry where margins are can be pretty slim, just like with restaurant industries. Um, and so, that's kind of where I'd go back to this, which is just giving people, whether it's, whether it's interview subjects or people learning from these interview subjects and interviews, a chance to be historians themselves, that it's not just a trained historian who um, has the opportunity or can look at these issues, but that we all living in the society have the ability and perhaps obligation to think deeply about where where we came from and why these issues exist today. And I, you see that in activism all across the country. But if we could start teaching that more so in public schools, in our private schools, and, and getting that kind of thinking and framing in at an earlier age um, would just, I think, really provide space and opportunity to start tackling and making culture changes and shift industries in the future. Ashley, thank you for sharing these stories with us. Thanks for having me. The COVID Dispatches series is produced in partnership with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. More essays like the one shared today can be found in issue 20.3, now available on the journal's University of California Press website. Meant to be eaten listeners can enjoy 30% off single print copies of this issue with the discount code GASTROAUG2020. All caps, all one word. The offer is valid through June of 2021. Stay tuned to the Heritage Radio Network for more COVID dispatches on this podcast, Meant to be Eaten. I am Bob Valgenti, and on behalf of the Gastronomica Editorial Collective, thanks for listening. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.